This is Matt. I'm the lead pastor at Westminster Baptist Church. Thanks for engaging God's word with us. My prayer for you is that this would be supplemental to your discipleship journey. Uh, If we can connect you with a local church or discipleship group, uh, please contact us at info at discoverwbc.com. Amen. Well, again, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through chapter 3, verse 7 this morning. And throughout this entire passage, what we're really going to focus in on is that God takes those whom you have any form of leadership over uh, and lifts them up through you. That you ought to be someone who brings up those who do what is good and those whom are around you under your leadership. Uh, the main point is to do good and to suffer for doing good. The idea is that we don't, we're not going to suffer for doing evil. But if we do suffer, we're going to suffer for doing good. So do good and suffer for doing good. Now there's no place in Scripture that is for or pro-oppression. Uh, of a man, a woman, a race, a friend, an employee, or anyone. God is so against oppression that we see throughout Scripture that He wipes out uh, um, entire civilizations and generations uh, through people and through His own natural causes. He will wipe out different groups that have uh, oppression and abuse built into them, whether it be a nation or an idea that forms a different group. Now, many people ask, why would God do this? Why would God destroy nations? Why would God flood the earth? And all these different reasons. But I want you to think about it, that God is not just ending a wicked life. He's also protecting a vulnerable life. Because God protects, throughout Scripture, God protects the weak. God protects those who cannot protect themselves. God protects those who are uh, unable to speak for themselves. God is for the vulnerable and will be their vengeance. He will be their provider, their protector, their sustainer, and their savior. We see it throughout Scripture, and even in Psalm chapter 11, verse 5, we see the Lord examines the righteous, but He hates the wicked and those who love violence. Today, there are at least 10 million slaves in the world. That's That's a low number. There's probably something like more like 40 to 50 million slaves today in the world. That might be a number number you know. It might be a number you didn't know. But the question coming from it is, what are we going to do about it? What have you been doing about it? What is the church going to do about it? How do we uh, employ and encourage and, and really give towards our nation doing something about it from within and outside? How do we change things? You know, I wonder if even you had the opportunity to write a letter, what would that letter say? If you had to get an opportunity to get on the phone, what would you say to somebody who is enslaved currently today? What would you say to somebody who was uh, enslaving others? What would you do to change things in the world? You know, often I hear people in first world situations with excess everything, judging this book, this Bible that we have, yet this book is written to not a culture who has excess everything, but nearly nothing. It's written to Christians who are stuck in slavery, who have no funds because they have recognized themselves as Christians, and so the government has slashed their ability to have a business or to provide for themselves financially. 
We, get, we see this happening throughout our world where they judge this book that is written to a culture that is completely different than ours. And so I want to encourage you this morning to understand what this passage is saying within the context to which it was written. It's a difficult passage. Sometimes I feel like maybe Pastor Glenn and Pastor Bill and, and Nick and, and others get together and they're like, all right, let's choose all the passages around the difficult ones and we'll let Pastor Matt preach that hard one. <laughs> I'm like, come on, I just had a baby. We just had a baby, but yeah, it's okay. I'm just kidding. But next time, Brandon, this is yours, all right? (laughs) So, no. (laughs) But seriously, when we come to these passages, the key in here is that we understand it within the context of which it was written. Even in this, sometimes, like, we're going to dive into four parts, uh, four-part ethical teaching from Peter uh, on how strangers and exiles live as um, uh, citizens of Rome, how strangers and exiles live as household slaves, how strangers and exiles live as husbands and wives when they have unbelieving spouses. We're going to look at how to live in a life that is not heaven. Now, I think it's so critical, even to understand in context, this book was not written to people who are living in heaven. This is, this is a book written to people who are in a fallen world, who are, as Paul says, in uh, the closest they will ever be to hell. That's the uh, Westminster Baptist Paul, not the biblical Paul. Uh, this is a note. This is not written to people who live in heaven. So when, when people sometimes judge this book based on their own culture, on their own excess uh, indulgences they have, they judge it based on uh, uh, ideals rather than situations because sometimes we don't understand where people really are in their life. Like if you didn't know that there was 10 million to 40 million slaves that exist in the world, that 200,000 Christians die every year because they just say that they're Christians. They're persecuted for their faith. Like when we don't go run in the midst of darkness and light it up, when we don't go to places like, uh, like Pastor Glenn and I talk about these things like the DR and like Haiti or, or across the world because we're like, no, 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 I'm scared of that. Like that's, that's a, I'm not, I can't do that. I'm afraid of those kind of situations. I'm like, look, you're never going to understand the situation they're in and how to really battle and help these people if you won't go get around them. You've got to understand the situation they're in. It's, it's, it's obnoxious, it's ignorant, it's foolish to think that you could hop on a phone with somebody who's enslaved in another country across the globe that you've never talked to and just get on the phone with them and you're like, hey, I know you're in a bad situation. Here's what I want you to do. I just want you to get out of it. I'm serious. It's It's foolish. It's honestly, it's, it's actually like, it's, it's so almost even emotionally abusive to do that to somebody. It's like promising them the hope that they'll never have, potentially never have, because some people who can do something about it won't do anything about it. Now, not you, your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're in a church. I'm sure I'm convinced that we are actively fighting against this. I'm always going to convince you or uh, encourage you to actively fight against things, to run in the midst of darkness and light it up locally and globally, wherever you are. But if you're going to hop on a phone and tell somebody just to get out of it and figure their way out of it, and then you're going to judge this book for writing a letter to somebody to encourage them and inspire them and try to give them hope within the midst of it, then it's, it's unfair to this scripture. It's foolish in this world, and it's not going to lead to any change in anybody's life. The only thing that can transform people's life 
is, is uh, God's mercy working through them through the, through the cross of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And when uh, good and godly men and women stand up and advocate for police and, and uh, anybody who holds the sword of God, like FBI and Army and government officials who have infinite amounts of money, to do something about the problems throughout this world. One of the worst things the devil can do is make you think that little insignificant things are major things and blind you from the major things that are actually happening in our world. It's so easy to think that it's so critical that we can have access to air conditioning in this room. It's, it's, uh, it feels pretty good in this room right now currently. Amen? Feel good? If we didn't have it, you know how many people would complain about it? Well, I was going to call you out specifically. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, there would be some people complaining about these things. Because it's easy to like, you know, the government says to you, let's, let's take it for instance, the government says to you, hey, hey, churches no longer can have air conditioning. Okay. Take our air conditioning. That's different than you can't share the gospel. All right, that's where I got a problem. We're going to talk, we're going to have a conversation now. You're, you're not going to stop me from preaching the gospel. That's the, that's the thing you're not going to stop me. If you want me to shut off the air conditioner, I'll do that. You're not going to stop me from preaching the gospel. Now, here's the problem, though. What we do sometimes is we let little minor things dictate major things, and all of a sudden there's a, a little thing in America that we start to harp on and we start to focus in on, and we won't, let, we won't back down. We put our foot down. We're like, I'm not going to change. When there's this global issue happening around the world where 10 to 40 million people are slaves, 20 or 20,000 are killed because of their faith. And we're like, but, 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 but what about the air conditioning the government's trying to take from us? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And it's in that context that we look at this and we're like, okay, well, who does God hate? Oh, Psalm 11.5 says that God hates wicked, evil people. He doesn't just hate, say he hates, I know it's a famous cliche, God hates the sin, not the sinner. I, that's not biblical. It's not anywhere in Scripture. What you will find is God hates sinners. Now, it's only when you can get to that point where you recognize that God hates sinners that you truly understand God's wrath and vengeance and how unimaginable His grace and mercy was on the cross. It's when Romans tells us, Romans 5-8 through 8 tells us that uh, for while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's not when we were perfect and good and God was like, yeah, I love them, obviously. Look at how awesome they are. So sure, I'm going to go send my son on the cross to die for them. No, it's in the midst of our wickedness and evil and sin that he sends his son, Jesus Christ. That's an, that kind of grace and mercy, it can't even be understood in a human capacity. It's beyond us and it only can be held in the divine. Our Yahweh God who gave his son to die on the cross saw us in the midst of our sin, hated it, hated us, and yet sent his son, whom he loves, to die on the cross that we wouldn't be stuck in a place of receiving his wrath, hate, and vengeance so that now you can be freed and forgiven and live a life on earth. That's grace and mercy. Grace and mercy is not when you're perfect and somebody applauds it. Grace and mercy is when you're insignificant, unworthy, causing terrible decisions and making terrible pain in people's lives, and yet God still redeems you out of that. And so what do you write to those people? What does Peter write to a people who are strangers and exiles in a foreign world with a grace and mercy that's been given to them to live different, act different? They've seen Jesus endure suffering in his own life. Though he's been good and holy, that he's endured this suffering that shouldn't have been given to them. What does Peter write to them? He says, do good and suffer for doing good. 
which is exactly what Christ did in 1 Peter chapter 2. We see it right after he talks about household slaves. How should you then live your life just like Jesus did? Do good and, and, and endure suffering only when it's for you doing good. And so as you, we walk through this passage, you're going to see oppression. You're going to see abuse. You're going to see persecution. And it's not going to sound much like what maybe our world would say today. And so I want to give you some backdrop to this. Remember this. God hates the wicked and the oppressive. God hates the abusive. God is a God for the fatherless and the oppressed. He always is for the vulnerable, and He is getting them out of the situation. So much to the so that He was willing to let His own Son die on the cross to get you out of it. Whether on this earth or in heaven, you will be freed from it. He hates evil and wickedness, and we ought to do everything we can do to get people out of it. But not everybody can get out of it. And it is ignorant, foolish, and harmful to act like with our comfy seats and wonderful air conditioning, I'm not just calling you out, I'm calling myself out too, that every single person can get out of the situation they're in, whether it's poverty or enslavement, whether it's physical or sexual or emotional or work, whatever it is, it's ignorant of us to think that all you have to do is pick up a phone and go get out of it. So let me tell you what happens. Let me show you what happens in Scripture here. And it's going to be a little difficult to understand. But all strangers and exiles, whether they're citizens in Rome, which was an abusive and oppressive nation, or household slaves under abusive and oppressive masters, or husbands or wives which are in a bad situation in a marriage, no matter what situation you are in, do good and endure suffering only when it's for doing good. So let's look at it. First uh, Peter chapter two, uh, verse uh, thirteen, with the context of verse eleven pulled down that Brandon and Miles gave us last week. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles. All right, so verse thirteen, strangers and exiles, submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God and honor the emperor. Now, in the context of chapter 3 and 4, what we know is that government should do this, all right? Just in the context of chapter 3 and 4 and Romans 13, bring it in. I'm going to give you a couple verses outside because we need to have a holistic picture of what, what's happening here. Uh, chapter 3 and 4 and Romans 13 tell us that the government ought to protect us from harm and injustices and applaud us when we do what is good, encourage us for what we do what is good. It'd be crazy if, we had a, if the world had a government like that, right? What if the whole world's government was protecting the vulnerable and encouraging the righteous? Man, this is what Peter's saying. That's what the government ought to do. Now, if you look at verse 15 and 16, it's not what they're doing, right? Specifically in 15 and 16, what does it tell us? It's the ignorance of foolish people when they slander you. First, uh, chapter 3 and 4 t- talked about how they slander you. What was, the, what was the government supposed to do? Applaud you when you do what is good. What are they doing? Slandering you for doing what is good. All right, so don't expect when you do what is good to be encouraged by the world. I'm not talking about America. I'm talking about citizens of Rome and any government in the world. I'm talking specifically about governments ought to protect and encourage, but rather what we often see is they don't protect and they discourage what is good. What Peter is specifically telling us to do here is do good and suffer for doing good, and you could say it like this, fight evil by doing good. 
Now, I recognize that not all people are fighting evil by doing good. There are people who are raised up to fight evil with guns, fight evil with uh, uh, finances, whatever it is uh, that you've been given to use as a resource to fight evil. And under the authority of God and in the vein of righteousness and justice with the right protocol taking place, we ought to be fighting for those who are being oppressed, uh, getting them out of those different situations. But when you are in a place where you are being oppressed and persecuted and cannot get out, what do you do? That's the question. You go to, you go to Rome. You go to Rome. And back in uh, Peter's day, and obviously you can't call them at that time. You go to Rome and you meet with a family who's just become believers in Christ in a pagan world where they worship many different gods. And you've got an emperor like Nero or Domitian at that time. And you get this letter. But you look at them and you go, hey, why not, why not just like stop? What, what are you going to tell them? Like get out? Rome is huge and massive. You're not getting out of that place. First of all, if you had the means to get out of it financially, it would take you years to travel that amount. Not years, but months at least. Rome was so vast, it covered, they would talk about it covering the, the whole world. It was so big. So you're not going to escape Rome. You're not going to escape Roman ideology. And even if you did, you'd get to another nation that was going to persecute you anyways for your faith. It wasn't accepted. Even in Palestine, Christians were uh, rejected, just like Jesus himself. So what do you tell somebody in the middle of Rome who's being persecuted, who's being oppressed, and cannot get out of it? Don't do things that are going to cause them to cause more pain and more persecution and more oppression on them. Be faithful to God. Honor the emperor, but fear the Lord only. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Try to live at peace with everyone, as Philippians and 1 Peter tell us. Try to do what is right so that you don't cause unjust, uh, more injustice being poured out on you, more oppression and more persecution to be poured out on you. It's the idea that, okay, if, there's a, if there are rules and regulations in the United States of America that I can obey by that are not going to cause me to suffer uh, uh, at the hands of the government, then I'm going to obey those. But the moment they infringe on my gospel rights and the gospel being preached, and the moment they tell me that I have to do something wicked, the moment they force me to do something wicked, is the moment we've got to put our foot down. And we're like, I'm not going to do that. Now, you've got to be careful here, because there could be all sorts of things. You could say, well, it infringes on my freedom, it infringes on my health, it infringes on all these different things. You could put all those things on the board. That's fine. Put them all out there and look at them all. But here's what, here's what you must do. Remember the pathway that God has given us to find wisdom through Him. Don't just look at it and be like, well, I think this is good, and I think this is right. I'm going to put my foot down. That's where I'm standing. Okay, what is, what, what are our, what's our process? What does God's Word say? What, do God's, what does God's Spirit say? And what do God's people say? In that order. Because the Spirit will never contradict the Word, and the people should never contradict God's Word or God's Spirit. So you surround yourself with God's Word, you surround yourself with God's Spirit, and you surround yourself with God's people, and you look at that situation and say, I'm sick and tired of buckling my seatbelt, so I'm not going to do it anymore. And hopefully your friends will look at you and be like, it's okay. It's not going to break your faith to click it in. And we have to look at every single situation like that and go, okay, what, what is good and what is not? What should I obey and what should I not? 
Romans 13 tells me to obey my authorities. How far should I go? When should I put down my foot? Because 1 Peter chapter 2 is clear. We're going to submit to the human authorities uh, because of the Lord. It's not that you're going to submit to the human authorities. You're going to submit to your emperor, the supreme leader. So for us as a president, we're going to submit to him. Why? Because we love God. Because we're going to preach the gospel. Because we're going to live at peace with men. Because we're going to show a different way where the world doesn't see us acting like them, where they see us acting the way they want to. With such grace and mercy and love and peace that they can't help but try to get it and want it. So we're going to transform the world by the way that we act and by the one who is in us, by the Spirit working through us, not uh, uh, the ways that the world uses and employs to change things. So fight evil by doing good, captivating holiness that captivates people. It's attractive. It makes people want what we have, and then we can give them the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Next, how should strangers and exiles live as household slaves? Verse 18, household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, you endure it. With This brings favor with God. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, living, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin. And notice he was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted him to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sin, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It says in verse 19, it brings favor if what? It doesn't say that if you it brings favor to God when you're persecuted and oppressed. That's awful. God hates it. It's wicked and it's evil. What it says is it brings favor if... Because of a consciousness of God, so a calling of God, a, a place that you ought to be in, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor for God. Why? Because in, in an oppressive nation and in an oppressive home, where there's a master and a slave, that's, it's unholy and unjust. When those situations are employed, there's, it's, the, it's not an opportunity not to be persecuted. The question is, how are you going to live in a way that is faithful to God? That's what Peter's trying to tell these people. How to live faithfully to God in the situation they're in today. It's like, again, it's like if you got a hold of somebody across the world who was enslaved in a place and you got on the phone with them and you were like, just get out. Here's why that's so foolish. You could actually be leading them to their slaughter. There are certain situations that, many situations, people cannot get out of unless we do something about it. And by we, what I mean is those with authority, power, resources. We have all three. We have authority in this world. It's like the moral police of the world. We have 
power unlimited, and we have resources unlimited to do something, but we have small things that we make big things and throw huge resources to rather than seeing big things that we avoid and don't do anything about. So you can't get on the phone and say, just get out of it, because they can't. Rather, what you have to do is find the people who can do something about it. You resource them, give them the funds, give them the the power that they need, the authority they need, vote towards it, give towards it, figure out how you can get the right people in the right place to do something about it. What Peter's doing is he's not writing to the governors to say, uh, uh, hey, you should stop um, uh, uh, letting slavery be free uh, or um, uh, legal. Uh, That's not what he's doing right now. It doesn't mean he doesn't do it. It doesn't mean God doesn't hate the wicked. It doesn't mean God doesn't hate oppression. It just means that's not what he's doing right now. Right now, what he's doing is for those who can't get out because they're indebted into slavery and it's legal and they're bound to it and they'll be killed if they try to get out of it. What he's saying is don't do anything that pesters your master to the point where he treats you worse and you get beaten worse. Because if you do, then you've gotten beaten for doing something wicked. Rather, if you're going to endure persecution, which many of them were going to endure regardless of what you said, many were going to endure... Uh, uh, at least endure that persecution for doing what is right, not what is evil. Do good and suffer for doing good. Don't suffer for doing evil. Practically speaking, that means don't, if there's rules and regulations that are set around you that you can obey that aren't unbiblical, live by those things so that you don't cause somebody to give you more oppression and more persecution in the place that you're in. And then Paul would write, and I know first, uh, sorry, I know Peter's uh, same uh, theology would write that the uh, master should free the slave, just like he says to uh, about Onesimus, right? That's the goal. That's the end game. Because it's always this, is that the life of the slave ought to transform the master to the point where the master now has such grace and mercy and love and sees how Jesus Christ lived his life and now returns to the, uh, to the slave and frees the slave because he understands what it's like to give grace and mercy and love and care and not be oppressive. That was the route by which Peter was telling them to go about transformation in these people's lives. Because if a slave uh, tried to fight back, they would often be killed or thrown into a gladiator arena uh, or, or other sorts of persecution and suffering. So what do you do? Even today, you could be looking at me and modern uh, first century, or sorry, 21st century um, uh, people in the world could look at this Bible and be like, man, that's so wrong that he addresses slaves in that way. So, well, okay, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Peter was trying to give them some hope. You know what the hope is? One day those masters who are persecuting you and oppressing you like that, they're going to wind up in hell burning because they don't have faith in Jesus Christ. And you could be like, man, that's, that's pretty brutal. Yeah, well, I want a God who will protect the vulnerable. I want to know that my God will protect the oppressed. I want to know my God has a plan for those who are enduring pain right now throughout the world. And I know He does. Whether we get up and do something about it, or one day they end up in heaven, and those who have been oppressive and persecuting and abusing are going to wind up in hell, I know my God has a plan. It's a whole lot better than most plans. I argue it's a whole lot better than sometimes our resources go to. And so Paul, uh, sorry, Peter's just trying to encourage these, these, uh, the, the, those who find themselves to be household slaves. As... Strangers and exiles, they're household slaves, 
Peter's trying to encourage those specific people, showing them that Christ also endured suffering at the hands of wicked and evil people, even though he did what was good. It's just encouragement to those who can't get out of the situation they're in. It's just a little bit here. We're going to look at strangers and exiles who are wives. Uh, so uh, chapter 3, verse 1. It says, In the same way, way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live. When they observe your pure, reverent lives, uh, don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry, uh, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any, any in, uh, intimidation. All right, so here's the setting again. And you'll see throughout all four of these that the setting is pretty much when you're uh, in a relationship with someone who's an unbeliever. And it could be even in a relationship with somebody who's an unbeliever doing unholy things. Uh, it could be oppression, could be persecution, could be abuse, uh, any of those different situations. Uh, it doesn't have to be to that level, but it is, uh, is, it's with people who aren't doing what is righteous. Okay? <clears throat> and what we see, I think, is Peter is addressing the Christians, not the non-Christians. And I think his assumption to some extent, and this is an argument from silence that I see consistently throughout Scripture and that I think comes from here, but I can't really make the argument because it doesn't necessarily say it, but I I, I think what he is saying is uh, masters of slaves aren't Christians because if they were, they would have freed their slaves. Uh, Governing authorities who persecute Christians aren't Christians because they wouldn't persecute Christians. Um, Husbands who are wicked to their wives aren't Christians because if they were, they wouldn't be wicked to their wives. And again, wives who aren't, uh, uh, who are wicked and evil to their husbands aren't Christians because if they were, they wouldn't be that way. So I think what he's doing is actually addressing the Christians because in this situation, we find Christians being those who are household slaves. In fact, I would be, I think it would be really uh, wicked uh, of the Bible and suppressive of the Bible not to mention women and not to mention slaves. A lot of times people view this and they're like, man, they're talking about slaves and how they should submit and they're talking about women and how they should submit. Those sound like terrible things. Um, who else submits in the Bible? Jesus Christ submits in the Bible. Literally to the point where he gives his life up for you. Not only that, that word for submit is given to every single one of us. To one another. Where it says submit to one another. It doesn't just say submit wives to husbands or husbands to wives. It says literally you submit to everyone. Not only that, it says you submit to the governing authorities. We're literally submitting to people, saying, who I am has been transformed by the grace and mercy of Christ, and I want you to see it in me, and I hope it transforms you too. And then when it transforms you, you're going to share that same kind of love and grace towards others. And so what this passage is doing is it's showing wives submit to your husbands in this way, that you see the beauty of a woman created in Christ Jesus is found not in what she wears, and not in how she smells, and not in the jewelry that she has on, not about the financial worth that she has, but instead on the character that she has, instead on who she's been created in Christ Jesus. Look, I believe my wife is beautiful. 
I love my wife and I love, I think she is beautiful on the outside. But who she is on the inside is stronger than who she is even on the outside. I know that one day that's going to fade. We're going to get older. We're going to die one day and our body's going to rot in the ground. But who she is ain't going to change. She's a godly woman and I love her for who she is and I get to enjoy that for the rest of my life. So what, what this passage is saying is show who you are. What it's saying is, listen again, show who you are, don't show who you aren't. So all of a sudden, uh, um, it's not a bad thing to wear jewelry, it's not a bad thing to wear nice clothes, it's not a bad thing to wear perfume. Guys, you can do the same. Uh, Whatever. Uh, (laughs) Aside. But anyways, um, what it's saying is, don't portray yourself to be something that you're not. You know what I'm saying? So if a woman looks beautiful because of what she's wearing, but internally she's wicked, don't be deceived. And, and, and it could sound harsh, but what I'm, what I'm telling you, ladies, is you're more valuable than what you look like on the outside. There's a worth inside of you that it doesn't change. That was created in Christ Jesus before the foundation of this world. He had you in mind and loved you and knew you and believed that you could become like his son Jesus Christ. That's why he gave his son Jesus Christ so that you could become like that. And what he's saying is you don't have to look like that for your husband to love you. If your husband loves you just because of the way you look, he doesn't know who you are. Show who you are. Show who you are. Not who you aren't. And, and, and if anything, goodness, Christians, we should be the ones who are showing who we are. Because people need to see who we are. They need to see how we're different. They need to see the love that is within us, the grace and the mercy that comes from us. They need to see that we've been transformed from who we are to who we, now who we are in Christ Jesus. Who we were to who we are. And so, man, some people look at this passage, especially people in this uh, culture today, and they look at these things and they're like, man, women have to submit? And I'm like, everybody has to submit. Stop. And then second, they're like, uh, man, you, you, you're telling women what they can and can't wear? You're telling, no, 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 no. We're just telling them they're greater than what you make them. You slap them on a magazine or in a movie and make them think that they're something because of what they're wearing, because they trimmed them down because of photo editing and all this mess? Man, you're far greater than that. We have a greater message, a message that you are far more than what you look like on the outside, and this world wants to scold that. Like, look at this and be like, oh, the Bible's oppressive to women. No, Rome's oppressive to women. Rome's oppressive to women. When you read this, this is lifting up women. And then you look at the end of it. I'm a little combative right now. Come back a little bit. Frustrates me when people jack up God's word. Um, you look at verse four. What is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit? They're like, oh, well, women should just be gentle and quiet. They shouldn't speak up. That's not what this is saying. Who's gentle and lowly? Jesus. Who, when they asked him, "Are you the King of the Jews?" didn't speak. Jesus. You know, more often than not, the disciples got in trouble for what? Speaking. Maybe they just need to learn a little bit from Jesus. And in fact, maybe we need to learn a little bit from Jesus, men and women. And maybe sometimes men need to learn a little bit from their wives on being gentle and quiet in spirit. 
This isn't a negative thing. This is a positive thing. If you look at it negatively, you don't understand the context of which women were enslaved, thrown into workforces where they couldn't provide for themselves, forced to bear labor but not be able to provide for themselves, and then men just walked out when they would, didn't want, like, just wanted to. They could cheat on their wives, and their wives couldn't divorce them, but if their wife cheated on them, they could throw them to the curb with as many kids as they wanted to. That's a wicked culture. That's the one to which he's speaking of. And then look at the next context. All right, so that's uh, uh, strangers and exiles. And of course, the goal is that husbands would come to faith and treat their wives right. And if they're in an abusive situation, again, remember this. If you're ever in an oppressive, abusive, abusive or uh, situation where you can't get out and you're, you're worried about your life or your health or anything like your children or whatever it is, we want to fight for you as a church. We will get access to local authorities who can get you out of that. I'm not telling you to stay in a context to which God has not called you. Get out of there. We, we hopefully we can uh, see transformation in a husband's life, and maybe his life will be transformed. But if there cannot be a reconnection, which, in, which solidifies and, and is, we're confident it can protect you, you don't need to be in a context, in a place where it could be threatened to your life or someone else's life, especially like your children. And that's not what this passage is saying. What it's saying is, if you're in a place where you can use your gospel influence to transform people to where they'll live different, do it. But if you're in a place where you, your influence and your power cannot uh, overthrow something that is oppressing you and trying to kill you, that's always a place where we should step in and get people out. We can't do it globally all the time, but we especially should do it within the church and the city that we're in. Like, if you know there's oppression happening in this city and you're not fighting against it, what are we doing? Okay. What's the next thing say? All right. The next passage is how husbands should live. Verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. This verse is so taken out of context and butchered around the world. Somebody reads this passage and they're like, what is the Bible saying that women are weaker? That's not what this is saying. Okay? Let me... Let me dig into what this is actually saying. First of all, what it's saying is men honor your wives as co-heirs with Christ. That's not saying they're weaker. It's saying they're princesses and queens in God's kingdom and you better lift them up. What it, man, what you could just summarize this passage is it's so great, man. Carl gave this to me. Carl Frendell gave this to me earlier. He said, he said Matt, it's like, it's like anybody that God gives you authority to care for, you should lift them up, not push them down. I was like, oh, my, man, it's such a great illustration. Just like that idea, if you have care over them, bring them up, don't push them down. If God's given you the opportunity to care for somebody, lift them up. And so he says, honor. All right, so let's just start there. Husbands in this room right now, or future husbands in this room right now, honor your wives. What does it look like for you to honor them, to respect, to lift up, to be bringing them up as princesses and queens in God's kingdom, to, to validate them with their words and, and your actions, to give them a place that says you are a queen in this kingdom. You're going to reign with God for eternity in this kingdom. You're not a slave. You're not suppressed. You're not just going to work. I'm not going to throw you to the curb. I'm lifting you up what you need I'll do. Right now, now back up just that earlier phrase because that's what people are going to pull out. They're going to go, Matt, you said, you said as with a weaker person. All right, let me give you two things. First, that word as is hoss. It's not hottie. Now, there's a difference there. Hoss means uh, 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 
uh, as or like. Hadi in, in Greek means uh, since or because, uh, or like that. It's setting up something. If it did, it, was, it would be saying that like... Um, uh, that all women are just uh, uh, weak and sick and physically can't do anything, and in every situation they're weaker than you. Since they're weaker than you. It's not saying that. It's saying like. All right, now first, get that like there. All right, now second, let's move to the second part of it. It says, a weaker partner. This is really frustrating to me. I'm writing to the editors. I'm, I, I'm man, uh, I don't understand why we translated this word this way. Let me tell you why. This word in Greek has, is not translated throughout Scripture at any point referring to a person. It's always referring to an object. Okay, Pastor Glenn's playing the keyboard. It'd be like me saying, hey, Glenn, you're, you are uh, like a keyboard. But in that, you go, no, we're not, we're going to change that word keyboard. We're going to go, Glenn, you're like a, uh, like a very black and white person with uh, very like uh, rigid and you, you don't bend and you're just, you make loud noise. Out of it. It's not, that's not what it's saying. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's saying he's like a keyboard. It's not saying that the keyboard is a person. Do you understand that? The keyboard's not a person. Everybody with me on the keyboard's not a person? I want to make sure we all agree this keyboard's not a person. Okay. Now go back to the passage. It says, uh, um, Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner. That word partner is not translated as a person throughout Scripture, right? What is it translated as? It's like an ivory uh, um, gift that you're given. Someone crafts something out of ivory. It's like a, uh, uh, usually it's translated as a, cl- a clay jar. Um, so when you put weaker in front of it, you, weaker uh, maybe is okay. I think fragile is probably a better word. Let me, let me translate this. Uh, you can trust your translations. I'm just going to give you what I think it more literally says, and you can do your own investigation. This will probably be a better translation. Husbands, in the same way, understand how to live with your wives like a fragile jar of clay. Now, I understand that could still have some negative influences here, but, but hear, hear this. In, the, better, the better way to understand this is, in any way that she needs you to, in any way that she's physically sick, uh, physically weak, spiritually weak, um, uh, financially weak, any, in any way that your wife needs you to be strong and step up, do it. It's honor uh, as co-heirs literally means to lift them up. So what you're doing is you're taking some beautiful jar of clay, something created out of ivory, and you're lifting it up. Man, if you're ever using this passage to suppress down, you are in that wicked, oppressive place. What you're doing is you're pushing them down, saying, you're the weaker, you stay down there. Here's what you should be doing. Man, look at your beauty. Not the beauty of you, just your outside, but the beauty of your inside. Look, that's what it says in this passage, right? Look at the character that is in your heart. Look at how you uh, handle these situations. Look at the righteousness that is in your life. I'm going to lift those things up, bring you up, and put you in the place that you belong. A co-heir with Christ. That's why it's so frustrating when people botch this thing and bash the scriptures. I'm like, first of all, you're, you're, you're reading this through the excess pleasures of this world. The easiness of this, of, uh, of America, the, the, the situations that we face. You're not reading this through the lens of a, an oppressive country that doesn't allow you to be Christians, that, that will literally take all your finances away because you're a Christian. You're not reading this through the lens of, of, of a, a civilization where women cannot divorce men even if they are uh, sexually unfaithful or uh, physically abusive. 
You have all the right in the world to do that in America. And you won't even be bashed or slandered in culture because of it. Probably be provided for and cared for. And there's even ways that you can be provided for and cared for. In fact, we will provide for and care for you if you're in that situation. Especially if somebody's run out on you or left you straight. That's not the culture that they faced, y'all. So we have to understand that when we come to this, man. Brothers and sisters, if, if you see um, citizens of another country that are being oppressed, raise them up. If you see a slave who's being oppressed, raise them up. If you find a husband or wife who's being oppressed, raise them up. Do good. Only suffer for doing wicked. Uh, sorry, suffer for doing good. That'd be bad. <laughs> Don't suffer for doing wicked. And uh, the band's going to come forward. I'm going to close with this. You know, I, I think about my brothers and sisters on the island where DR and Haiti are. And they listen to our live stream. So, brothers, we love you. Um, here's the thing. We cannot be terrified to go there. We cannot be terrified to go. Sorry, you can be. But what is this passage saying? Don't be intimidated. Look, you, you cannot change their government. If president after president in, in those nations get killed, uh, overthrown. There's no election system. Even the election system that is there is not good. Uh, they usually don't get who they actually vote for. Uh, the police are often corrupt. Uh, very corrupt. It's a darkness all around them. What do you write to them? What are you going to write to the brothers and sisters that we, we support financially and ministerially down there? They might not be able to change their government, but they can live faithfully today. They can preach the gospel faithfully today. They can love their family well today. And look, if you want to do something different, go do something different. Use your finances, use your uh, life, use your body, use literally everything you have to change something. Go. Don't be afraid to go. If, if, if at all possible, give God the glory and say, I will go to this place even if it means my life. Right? Sometimes I say, like Pastor and I talk about this, I'm like, I will go to Haiti. Tell me how to get there. Somebody's like, I'll fly you down there. I'm like, okay, personal jet, let's go. Like, plane, uh, boat, let's go. I don't care. Get me there. Because the thing is... Sometimes when I say I'm going to Haiti, people are like, man, you know how scary that is. And it's like, yeah, absolutely. It's terrifying for them. You see what I'm saying? It's terrifying that they live in a world where they have no opportunity to escape the, imp- the poverty and the oppression, the abuse, the murders. They have no opportunity to get out of it. All right, so let's do something. Let's look at this passage and see how it encourages and brings hope to people. Or let's be inspired by this passage because we're frustrated with the reality of it. You should be frustrated that you even have to write a letter to, to slaves. Because maybe it'd be better if there weren't 10 to 40 million slaves in the world. Well, if there's not going to be 10 to 40 million slaves in the world, we've got to do something about it. We've got to stop worrying about these little small things, and we've got to bring up these massive things and do something about it. So church, let's do something. I have three gospel responses for you. First, do good. And I know that's super simple, and it's like anti-counseling recommendations, and I've given it to you before. I'm just going to keep constantly bringing it before you. Just do good. Whatever situation you're in, do good. I don't know what that looks like. I'm going to try to help you understand that. So second is this. Part of doing good um, is uh, running in the midst of darkness to light it up by uh, uh, fighting against oppression locally and globally. Oppression, abuse, uh, uh, persecution locally and globally. Fight against it. Now, I don't know what fight means for, you, for everyone. Some of you have the opportunity to fight uh, with 
guns. Somebody has the opportunity to fight with financial resources. Some of you have the opportunity to fight with words or legislation. Use what you have at your disposal to fight back against it if you've been given the power and authority to do so. Right? So we look at scripture. What a power and authority do I have as a citizen in the United States of America, but under God's word, what power and authority do I have to use my resources to make change in the world? That's what I should use. That's what you should use. So how are you fighting back against oppression locally and globally? And third, I challenge you to uh, write a letter to yourself. Or, or, or you can have somebody else write a letter to you of, of what it might sound like if this first, if, if first Peter was written to you. What would it sound like if 1 Peter was written to you and not to these four different situations of how you should live in the situation that you face today? Maybe you're facing uh, um, a financial situation you feel like you can't get out of. Maybe you're facing uh, a disease you feel like is uh, is wiping you out. And you're just like, man, I don't know what to do. Uh, Maybe you are in a a work environment that's super unhealthy. Um, Maybe you're in in a marriage that you need help. You need either out or you need help. Whatever situation you are in, um, writing that letter to yourself to say, this is what I need to do in this situation. And then make it happen. Put it into action. Even just writing yourself that letter will put it in reality of like, okay, this is what I ought to do today. Am I going to do this? If you need help, like we want to help you. Uh, us, maybe getting you access to somebody else, other counseling, uh, uh, whatever it is. We want to help you get that. Now, I will say at the end of this, just across the board, if you're in a position, like a place where you, you could, uh, if you're in this room and you're in an abusive marriage and you need help out, we want to help you. Uh, if you are um, uh, in a place where you've been uh, enslaved, whether it's work or sex or whatever it is, we want to help you out of that. So uh, it's a reality in America. It's a reality in our county. And I don't want you to think in this message that I'm telling you, you just going to stay where you are. It's not what this text is saying. It's saying if you're in a position where you are uh, being abused or uh, oppressed or, or all these different things, live faithfully to God while others help you get out of this terrible situation. So ask for help. All right. Um, I'm going to pray for you, and I want to remind you, Jesus Christ loves you. He was willing to go to the cross for you. He despised, despite your wickedness and evil, He loves you. It doesn't matter what you did. And I say that because somebody in here in this room might think, no, nah, nah, He wouldn't love me. You don't know what I've done. Yes, He did. He loves all of us, despite what we've done, and He loves you. And He will pull you out of the situation you're in if you just give Him the opportunity and surround yourself with His church and His Spirit. He will bring you up out from darkness into light. I'm going to pray for you. If you need help or want to talk, I'm going to be right over here. Or if you're not comfortable coming down right now, shoot me an email or shoot one of the pastors an email. We'd love to get back with you. Let me pray for you. God, Your Word is good. Your Spirit is working. Your people are here. I pray, Father, You would convict and compel. I pray, God, you would lead us to where you have for us. Would you provide protection for us as a church? But I also pray, God, with uh, one voice as a representative of this church, God, that you would uh, provide a way out for those who are out, uh, throughout this world in a place where they cannot escape the oppression that they face today. Whether you use us or someone else, God, use, uh, use your resources and your people at your disposal for your glory and for, for the good of this world. God, would you motivate, would you send people throughout this room to go and change the world? And in the meantime, like Peter did, uh, I pray, Father, that letters, that words, that encouragement will be given to the people who are stuck in these places. They would have hope that you are their king, that you are their vengeance.
You're their provider. You're their savior. And God, when you say that you are the father of the fatherless, help us to be the ones who are the hands and feet of that work. We love you, Father, in your son's name. Amen. You have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more about following after Jesus, uh, please contact us and we would love to talk more about your relationship with Christ and how you can grow in your spiritual journey.